blood-tingling tales, the complete series. All five volumes of blood-tingling tales bundled into one convenient collection. Only $2.99 or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Search for Blood Tingling Tales Complete Series on Amazon or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood Maniac on the Loose. Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Nine Lives of Ski Mask Life 5 Medusa Chapter 1 Madeline Ski Mask runs down the north wing corridor to his bedroom. Madeline is sprawled out on the floor. Max is lying next to her, using one of her arms as a pillow. She tries to lift her head, but is unsuccessful. Instead, she just whimpers and manages to wag her thick tail. Ski Mask rushes to her side and lifts up her head. He looks into her foggy eyes and rubs her snout. My poor baby. She stares at him and whimpers again. I'm here. It's gonna be okay. He rubs her head and gives her a kiss on the nose, causing her tail wagging to increase. Do something for her! Do something for her! He looks back at Claire and sees a tear rolling down her cheek as she shakes her head. I'm sorry. I've done everything I can. He looks back at Madeline. The life in her eyes appears to be flickering on and off. No. No! This isn't happening. Not Today, he wraps his arms around her mammoth body and looks up at Claire. Help me pick her up. A constant cloud of dust lingers behind Ski Mask's truck as he flies down the gravel road. He looks over his shoulder at Claire in the back seat, who is cradling Madeline and stroking her head. How's she doing? Claire is remaining strong, but can't conceal the concern from her expression. The same. Ski Mask presses the accelerator to the floor. Chapter 2 Jack Frost Ski Mask pulls up to the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital and is surprised to see the buzz of activity. A cluster of news vehicles have clogged the entire front circular driveway. 
Swarms of media members congest the main entrance. Several police officers and security guards are attempting to maintain some kind of order, but are largely unsuccessful. What is going on? Schemas takes a scan of the area and then looks back at Claire. Wait here. Schemask bolts from the car. He quickly assesses that he has no chance to enter through the overrun main entrance and ducks around the building to a small side entrance. Several media members are trying to enter through there as well. Schemask shoves his way through the mass of people, hurling several of them to the ground and in no time reaches the security guard who is manning the door. Where's Dr. Grimm's office? I'm sorry, this is employee entry only. You have to go around to the main entrance. They'll help you there. Schemas smashes his forearm into the security guard's throat and pins him against the wall as he snaps open a knife and holds it inches from the guard's face. Where is Dr. Grimm's office? The security guard pants and speaks quickly. Uh, fourth floor, room 438. Schemask removes the walkie-talkie and the gun from the guard's belt. He slams the walkie to the ground, shattering it in pieces, and roughly pushes the guard aside before disappearing into a nearby stairwell. The stairwell is busy. Several different hospital personnel rush back and forth, including some security guards who rush past him, not even giving him a second glance. Either they are completely frazzled by the magnitude of the clearly unexpected chaos, or they are simply inept. Likely both. Obviously something major has happened, but Schemas doesn't care what it is as long as he can find Franklin Grimm. He reaches the fourth floor in his face with a large, authorized personnel only sign. He tries the door, but it's locked. Luckily for him, some random person in a lab coat hustles through the door past him. Schemas catches the door before it closes and enters the fourth floor. He notices a security station next to the entrance, but it's unmanned. Schemas shakes his head at the incompetence he's witnessed in the few minutes he's been here. Schemas marches down the hectic corridor past a variety of people. He sees a thin, red-headed man in scrubs calling out to Dr. Lewis as he runs down the hall. He stops at a woman in her 40s with short brown hair wearing a doctor's jacket and holding a clipboard. Dr. Lewis, have you seen Dr. Grimm? She shakes her head. No, his office door is locked. I don't know where he is. The redhead panics. The hospital is about to be overrun by the press. He has to make some kind of statement. Things are out of control. Schemask hurries past them and is troubled by how many other people he overhears asking about Dr. Grimm's whereabouts. Time is of the essence. He needs to find Dr. Grimm. Schemas takes notice of the doctor walking toward him who stands out from the crowd. He's a burly man with white hair and a thick white mustache. While most everyone else is anxious, this man holds a smirk on his face and appears subtly cheerful. Schemas looks down at the doctor's name tag that reads Dr. Clark. He can overhear Dr. Clark speaking to a colleague. He speaks in a near gleeful tone. This could ruin him. Dr. Clark is not watching where he is going, and his shoulder bumps Ski Mask. He barks at Ski Mask in a testy manner. Watch where you are going. Dr. Clark looks at Ski Mask with disgust, as if he were some kind of lowly peon, before continuing on with his colleague. Ski Mask files the name in the back of his mind and continues to Dr. Grimm's office. The chatter he overheard is confirmed. Dr. Grimm's office is indeed locked. He can hear the phone continuously ringing behind the door. 
He bangs on the door, but there is no reply. He pounds on it again, but there is no response. Grim, open this damn door right now. Ski Mask steps back and gives the door a kick, and another, and another. The door finally swings open. Dr. Grimm's secretary, Gloria, cowers behind her desk as Ski Mask bursts into the secretary's portion of Dr. Grimm's office. Where is he? Gloria, who is making no attempt to answer the phone that is ringing off the hook in front of her, takes in a breath and speaks calmly. He's not in. Ski Mask approaches the attached office door to the right of the room and turns the knob, which is locked. He's not in. If you leave your name, I'll have him contact you as soon as he's able. Ski Mask turns and glares at Gloria. He speaks slow and distinctly. Buzz. Me. In. The haunting look Gloria is receiving conveys the fact that if she doesn't do as requested, this could very well be the final day of her life. She can't hit the buzzer fast enough. Ski Mask enters Dr. Grimm's office and slams the door behind him. Dr. Grimm, who is sitting behind his desk, staring out the window at the growing mass of unwanted humanity, startles and spins around. Ski Mask! What the hell is going on around here? Why are you locked in your office? You haven't heard? Heard what? About the escape. The serial killer Jack Winters, better known as Jack Frost. He escaped today. I'm not surprised. Your security here is a joke. Dr. Grimm looks out the window at the onslaught of reporters. These vultures want my scalp. Forget about that. I need your help. It's Madeline. Madeline? My St. Bernard. She's dying. I want you to give her a lifeline. Dr. Grimm looks at Ski Mask as if this request is preposterous. Are you out of your mind? If you haven't noticed, this isn't the greatest time for me. Ski Mask walks in a deliberate fashion behind the desk. Dr. Grimm rolls his chair backwards away from Ski Mask until he halts at the wall. Ski Mask moves his face closer to Franklin. This is not a request. Dr. Grimm holds his hands up. Okay, okay, I'll help. I'll bring her up. Well, I don't have the equipment here. Everything's at the lab. I, I don't know when I'll be able to get out there again. Now. We are going there right now. Dr. Grimm stands and begins to pace back and forth as he rambles. No, I, I, I can't. They'll rip me apart. Don't you understand? A notorious serial killer escaped from my institution. I could lose my job. Franklin, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. We are leaving now. Dr. Grimm's mind is elsewhere. This job means everything to me. Ski Mask grabs him by the jacket and presses him against the wall. You're not going to have a life, let alone a job, if you don't come with me right now. Okay, okay. Ski Mask lets him go. Dr. Grimm looks flustered. What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of here? His eyes begin darting around the room as he calculates his next move. Suddenly, he rockets toward the door. I'll meet you at the lab. Dr. Grimm sprints out of his office past his secretary who calls for him, but he doesn't slow down. Ski Mask moves to the secretary's door, peers down the corridor, and observes Dr. Grimm running past his subordinates. Many who are calling out to him are stating, there he is. Ski Mask watches as a panicked Dr. Grimm exits the floor via the stairwell. Ski Mask shakes his head. Fool. Chapter 3 Conflict 
Dr. Grimm helps Ski Mask and Claire set Madeline on a steel gurney inside the Grimm's lab. Her breathing has become extremely labored and her eyes have glassed over. Dr. Grimm listens to her heart with a stethoscope. Her heartbeat is extremely weak. He takes the stethoscope out of his ears and looks solemnly at Ski Mask. I'm afraid she won't last much longer. Ski Mask grabs Dr. Grimm by the coat. Do something! Claire attempts to pull him back. Calm down. Help her! She has to pass first. And then I'll bring her back. Ski Mask takes in a few breaths and releases his grip on Dr. Grimm. Claire rubs Ski Mask's back and consoles him as he looks mournfully at Madeline. Her eyes have closed now and her breathing is deep and slow. Ski Mask whispers to Madeline. It's gonna be okay, baby. We'll make you feel all better. Madeline lets out a slow, wheezing breath and doesn't take one back in. Madeline? She is no longer breathing. No. Dr. Grimm listens to her heart with the stethoscope, looks at Ski Mask, and shakes his head. Ski Mask drops his head down onto Madeline's body. My baby. My sweet baby. He looks up at Franklin. Fix her. Dr. Grimm takes out his revival device. He presses a button and the tip glows red. Ski Mask opens Madeline's eyes with his fingers and speaks to her. I'm right here, Madeline. Claire watches on with bated breath as Dr. Grimm places the tip of the device to the base of Madeline's skull. I'm right here. Claire grips onto Ski Mask's forearm as she watches. Madeline doesn't move. She shows no signs of life. Her lungs are still. Her mouth is open and her tongue lies lifelessly on the cold metal of the gurney. Ski Mask begins to panic, looking back and forth rapidly between Claire and Dr. Grimm. What's wrong? Why isn't anything happening? A cough stops Ski Mask in mid-sentence. At first, he thought it was Dr. Grimm, but Dr. Grimm is looking at Madeline and smiling. Another cough, and another, followed by Madeline quickly rolling from her side to her belly and lifting her big fat head up. She looks around the room and her eyes fill with enthusiasm when she sees Ski Mask. She jumps down off the gurney with the ease of a jaguar. She looks at Ski Mask and lets out several playful barks. Her tail is a blur from the speed of her wagging. She lowers the front of her body while keeping her haunches up in the air and lets out a playful growl before launching forward and running around the lab like a puppy. She grabs a box of latex gloves off the shelf and shakes them like a rag. She barks again and runs to Ski Mask who bends down and closes his eyes as he hugs her tight. She responds by nearly licking his face off and then prances to Claire who loves on her as well. Ski Mask, still kneeling, places his hands over his face. After a moment, he drops his hands and looks up at Dr. Grimm. He stares at him briefly and then propels forward toward him. Dr. Grimm backpedals but cannot escape the massive bear hug Ski Mask lays on him. Dr. Grimm is shocked and looks as such during the duration of the hug. Ski Mask then places his hands on each side of Dr. Grimm's face and plants a big smacking kiss on his cheek. He looks him directly in the eyes and speaks firmly. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you're, you're welcome. Now I want you to implant her with an auto-regenerating chip. What? These aren't tic-tacs that you can just toss around willy-nilly. These are sophisticated pieces of hardware. I don't think you realize the amount of time it takes to complete one of these. He stops when he sees the seriousness of Ski Mask's expression. But this isn't a request, is it? Ski Mask shakes his head. Okay, but you owe me. 
Ski Mask nods and Dr. Grimm collapses into a chair. Now that this ordeal has been dealt with, his mind refloods with the escape. He drops his head into his hands and shakes his head as he speaks. I'm ruined. Ski Mask looks back at Madeline who is getting her belly rubbed while being baby talked from Claire. He pulls up a chair next to Franklin. What happened? Jack Winters escaped. Have you heard of him? I remember something about him. A Jack the Ripper type, right? Killed a bunch of whores? Uh, right. Ski Mask shakes his head with disgust. Pathetic. Mommy issues. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. How do you escape? Well, somehow, someone screwed up the paperwork and security let him out as part of a field trip group. Once off the grounds, it was easy pickings for him. Nobody dangerous was supposed to be with that group. They were supposed to spend the morning at a park. Security was light. He killed the guards, the doctor, the other patients, and waltzed away. Who made the escape public? Well, I did. I was hoping he could find him before he got far. That was your first mistake. You should have called me. I could have tracked him down, subdued him, and brought him back. Nobody would have known a thing. You'd still catch some heat for your field trip group getting slaughtered, but it wouldn't be to the extent you're feeling right now. Hell, if I had enough time, I could have made it look like the group was killed in a crash. <laughs> what? what? Really? You think you could have done all that? Ski Mask grins. Piece of cake. Who's your head of security? Uh, well, his name is Stan Walters. He's a bungling twit. Just inherited a bunch of land and is always going on about wanting to start some kind of hiking company. His head is always in the clouds. I, I should have fired him years ago. Perfect. He'll be your scapegoat. Get rid of him. Deflect most of the responsibility onto him and weather the storm. It may be rough for you in the short run, but eventually this will blow over. Dr. Grimm's mind drips off. As the plan Ski Mask laid out for him begins to make sense, he starts to nod. Uh, yes. Yes, I, I, I think you're right. I think I may be able to survive this, but who will I get as my new head of security? Ski Mask holds his arms out and winks. I owe you, right? A sense of relief washes over Franklin's face. Alfred quickly enters the lab. Franklin, I just heard about the escape. Are you okay? Franklin nods and smiles. Yes, I'm, I'm going to be just fine. Is there anything I can do? Thank you, but I have it all under control. Alfred turns to Ski Mask. I'm glad you're here. Your requirement that we no longer use animals for experimentation has our development at a standstill. We must continue our work. In addition to that, I have many questions for you about your experience with the autoresponder chip so that we can continue to make progress. Alfred, I am the answer to all your problems. Come back to my place with us. I'll show you what I mean. Alfred seems encouraged and nods. All right, let me have a few words with Franklin. I'll be out your way shortly. Ski Mask looks to Franklin. Tell him how to get there. As Franklin takes Alfred's phone and enters the coordinates, Ski Mask opens the door to the lab. Come on, girl! Madeline friskily runs out the door, followed by Ski Mask and Claire. After the door shuts, Alfred turns to Franklin. You look better than I was expecting. Franklin points to the door Ski Mask just walked through. That guy is something else. He is quite the specimen indeed. Alfred studies Franklin for a moment. I must say, I was expecting you to be more unhinged than you are. <laughs> Disappointed? Alfred is offended. How dare you? Of course not. I'm pleasantly surprised at how well you seem to be holding up. Well, it's, it's an unfortunate situation, but I'll get through it and come out on the other side a wiser man. 
Alfred nods. That's quite the admirable attitude. He pats Franklin on the arm. I'm proud of you. Franklin rolls his eyes. But, but, you don't need to be working in that stressful environment. This project we are immersed in will change the world. It will change our lives as we know it. It will change everyone's lives. And quite frankly, it's a lot more important than overseeing the wasted lives at that madhouse you spend most of your existence at. I love what I do. Why, why can't you understand that? You only see what you want to see, but you never bother trying to see things from my perspective. I'm in charge there. I run the game. Everybody looks up to me. I'm respected. I'm revered. You want to be godlike? What could be more godlike than giving back life? And who will be more revered than those who created this possibility? When you ran that hospital and I was rising up the ranks, I was never given the respect I deserved. Even though I worked my ass off and earned everything I ever got there, it was always assumed that Daddy was giving me a leg up the entire time. When you retired and I took over, that all changed. Sure, most thought I got the job because of whose son I was, but what no one could deny is that I turned that place around on my own after you left. And that was me. It was all me. That hospital is me. Everything that is accomplished there is because of me, not you, and not because I'm your son. I'm tired of living in your shadow. Have you lost your mind, Franklin? Have you gone mad? Don't you realize this is the same situation? Yes, I may have invented this technology, but I don't have many years left. <laughs> don't have many years left? Are you serious? We both know that as soon as you study ski mass further and determine that it's absolutely safe to do so, you will implant yourself with the lifeline and I'll be living in your shadow for the rest of my life. No, Franklin. I'll make sure that we are equal partners and that we get equal credit. I'll even give you more credit. More than I deserve? That's not what I meant. <laughs> but it's true. This is your invention. I'm just some damn sidekick. I'm your Igor. Franklin. No, I'm through talking about this altogether. Alfred lets out a defeated breath. We'll revisit this discussion when you're in a more stable state of mind. He stares at his son for a moment, turns, and exits the lab. Chapter 4 Something New When they open the door to the house, Madeline bolts in and starts running around the main room in circles, burning off some of the energy that she hasn't experienced in years. When she finally slows down, the other dogs all encircle her and sniff at her. Slick and Trip are both beamed in the head multiple times by Madeline's hefty wagging tail. Max begins jumping joyously as he tries to lick Madeline's snout. During the excitement, Floppy and Dempsey begin wrestling with each other, and this continues as they run down the north wing toward the bedrooms. After thoroughly inspecting Madeline, Snowman lies down and rests while viewing the surrounding excitement. Schemas looks at Claire, who is smiling and occasionally laughing while she watches the dogs. She has no idea how close Schemask is to looking at her soft skin, her lips, her eyes. When she finally realizes he is looking at her and turns her head, Schemas quickly moves his eyes as if he were caught doing something he shouldn't have been. This makes Claire smile. I never got to ask you how your trip went. It was successful. 
Claire smirks as she sarcastically asks the next question. Did you die again? Yes. Claire's eyes widen. I was kidding. Did you really? Yep. What happened? Ski Mask is visibly apprehensive to divulge specifics, and Claire recognizes this. It's okay. You don't have to tell me. Claire grins and ponders a moment. You know, you're kind of like a superhero. That's bullshit. Your language. Sorry. Bull crud. I'm no hero. She gazes at Madeline, who is now cuddled on the floor with Max. You were today. Claire and Ski Mask look at each other, friendly casual at first, and then their eyes lock. Neither would admit that the look is anything other than innocent, but their eyes betray them, as does the length of their stare. The loud beep of an alarm breaks their focus and Ski Mask glances at the security monitors. It's Alfred. He looks to Claire. Buzz him in, will ya? Claire goes to the intercom panel and gives Alfred the instructions on how to enter. Ski Mask looks down the west wing and then back at Claire. After Alfred leaves, if you want to sit with me and the birds, I'll tell you what happened on my trip. If you'd like to know. Claire is overjoyed. I do. I'd really like that. Alfred knocks on the door. Slick immediately runs to Claire's side as she opens it. The other dogs look up attentively, waiting to see if Slick will need any assistance. Sorry for the delay. Scarface and Darkness trot to Alfred, sniff at his ankles, and then aggressively begin rubbing their heads and bodies against his calves. Oh, cats. I'm not a big fan of... Claire quickly shakes her head and motions back to Ski Mask. Alfred catches her drift. Hello there, kitties. He looks at Slick, who is sizing him up. Hello, puppy. Alfred pats Slick on the head and looks up at the main room of Ski Mask's dwelling. My god, Ski Mask, this place is incredible. I think you'll be even more impressed by the East Wing. Come on. Ski Mask motions Alfred to the East Wing and they walk down the corridor to the door. Before punching in the code to open the door, Ski Mask looks back at the empty corridor behind him. Wait here, I'll be right back. Ski Mask walks to the end of the corridor to the main room to find Claire staring at the corridor. He walks closer to her. Do you want to come with us? Claire's eyes widen and she doesn't hesitate to answer. Yes. Ski Mask waves her on. When they reach the end of the East Wing corridor, Ski Mask punches in the code to the door and they follow him down to the stone stairs. Ski Mask stops at the accordion folding gate. He flips a fake stone on the wall that reveals another keypad. Before entering the code, he addresses Alfred and Claire. You have to enter the code to open this gate. He looks directly at Claire. If for some unlikely reason this gate is unlocked, you still have to enter the code. If anyone passes beyond this gate without entering the code, booby traps are activated throughout the entire East Wing. Is that clear? Alfred and Claire both nod, and Ski Mask enters the code which automatically folds the gate to the side. Welcome to the East Wing. Ski Mask guides them through a myriad of twists and turns, leading them down one passage to another before finally stepping into a large room. Alfred is overwhelmed by the size of it. My God! The room is provided with a variety of counters, cabinets, and shelving units. There are four prong industrial electrical outlets every four feet. There are multiple sinks and affixed island tables. Fluorescent lights line the ceilings, but there are also several large dome exam crane lights that can be pulled down and adjusted to one's preference. 
Eight small jail cells make up one entire wall. Each cell is furnished with cots, toilets, and the walls are equipped with various restraints. Ski Mask leads them to a room off the back of the lab. He opens the door and flicks on the lights, revealing a cozy, furnished, one-bedroom apartment. Alfred walks through the apartment. He then wanders back out into the lab and starts turning around, taking it all in. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. This is your new lab. Alfred turns to Ski Mask. His mouth is agape. I really don't know what to say. Thank you. Ski Mask nods. I'll be much more productive in this setting. He takes in a breath. Unfortunately, I'll be slowed by the increasing absence of my son. That damn hospital continues to soak up all of his time. Claire steps forward. First of all, watch your language in this place. Secondly, I can help. She may have spoken too soon and looks to Schemas to interpret his reaction. He appears neutral, which is probably a good sign. I mean, the animals keep me busy, but when Ski Mask is home, I have a lot of time on my hands and I'm curious to learn more about all of this. Alfred studies her for a moment and slowly nods. I think you can be of great assistance to me. Groovy! Ski Mask speaks as he walks toward the door. Claire follows him. We'll leave you to get a better feel for the place and let your wheels spin as to how to best utilize it. If you ever need me or Claire, there are intercoms by the main doors of every room. Alfred nods as he almost giddily wanders through his new lab. Ski Mask and Claire exit and walk a considerable distance down one of the passageways before either of them speak. I have to ask, the cells, the booby traps, the freezer, the bodies, this whole underground fortress? Don't ask questions you don't want to know the answers to. But I want the answers. They exit the passage into a large corridor that Ski Mask would refer to as the main corridor. Maybe I can assist you in other ways other than just helping to take care of the gang. Ski Mask shakes his head. You have no idea what you'd be getting into. Claire stops, and in turn, Ski Mask stops and faces her. I can handle it. Ski Mask studies her face. She is serious, but this is a big step. Something he's never even considered. An assistant? Before he can say anything, his phone rings. He holds up his finger to Claire as he answers it. Even though the phone is pressed against Ski Mask's ear, Claire can still make out the frantic voice of Dr. Franklin Grimm. Ski Mask, I need your help! What is it? There's been another escape! Two escapes in one day? You have to be kidding. No, I'm not! Something is wrong out there. You're goddamn right something is wrong, and I'll tell you exactly what it is. My head of security is a mental midget. He is the definition of ineptitude. Will you calm down? Who else knows about this? Nobody. Nobody. I did just like you said. I called as soon as I discovered the escape. Good boy. I'll get in touch with my people, and we'll find your escapee. What's their name? Chapter 5 Medusa Ski Mask and Claire stand in Tamale Jones' office. 
She goes by the moniker of Medusa. One reason, because of this skirt's hairdo. It's one of those dreadlock get-ups. The way she fashions it makes it come across as a head of snakes. Two, because she has a fascination with, you guessed it, snakes. They say one of the scale's turn-ons is to get the old heave-ho while covered in poisonous snakes. Venomous. What's that? You said poisonous. You meant venomous. Ah, uh, there's a difference? Venom is injected directly, such as a snake bite. Poison is a toxin spread via ingesting or merely by touch. Think poison ivy. Okay, so she likes to be covered with venomous snakes when she's having a blanket party. Either way, this is one crazy Jane. Claire lets out a short sign of relief, causing both Ski Mask and Tamale to look at her, obviously wondering why. She recognizes this and explains. I was relieved because I thought you were going to say the B-word. You mean bitch? Claire winces at the word. She doesn't like cursing. Uh, my apologies, I'll try to keep that in mind. Well, kudos to you for using Crazy Jane as a creative alternative to swearing. Well done. Tamale looks at her curiously. Who are you? She's with me. Tamale thinks for a moment and then smiles mischievously. Ah, I get it. No, not like that. Tamale studies Claire for a moment and crinkles his brow. You look familiar. Have we met? Claire shakes her head and answers quickly. No. I know I've seen you somewhere before. Ski Mask steers the discussion back to the main topic. Tell me where I can find this Medusa. My sources tell me that she used to frequent a fetish establishment called Club Fun. They have something called the Snake Room, which would be right up her alley. She could be lambing it over there. Thanks, Tamale. Tamale gives Ski Mask and Claire a tip of his fedora, and they exit. Chapter 6 Club Fun The building appears to be an old abandoned school. The once vibrant colors on the outside of the building have been weathered away by time, exposing dirty concrete. The entrance to the building is plain, centered by two gray metal doors with vertical windows. One wouldn't think anything was happening beyond the doors if it weren't for the flashing strobe of light. His instinct is to tell her to wait for him in the car, but he knows she'll be eager to assist, and it's possible she may be helpful. Ski Mask reaches into the glove compartment, pulls out a black bandana, and hands it to Claire. Wear this over your face. This is a sex fetish club. Ordinary will stand out. Claire takes in a breath, ties the bandana around her neck, and raises it over her nose. Ski Mask nods and pulls his ski mask down over his head. Let's go. The exclusivity of the club appears to be nil as there is no one manning the door, giving the appearance that anyone can enter at will. Ski Mask and Claire walk down the entrance corridor to a vinyl curtain. They push it aside and enter another corridor. This one is painted with pastel blue, yellow, and pink stripes. Ahead of them they see a woman in a black dress and a beehive-style wig, pulling a man in a purple shirt and leather pants past a corridor and around a corner. Ski Mask stops and peers down the corridor to their right. This one is colored light gray. The lighting in the hall casts a slight blue hue over everything. Halfway down the corridor is a short flight of five stairs. The corridor continues beyond that. Ski Mask waves for Claire to stay back as he spies on the events unfolding before him. 
A nerdy man with a comb-over, Buddy Holly-style glasses, and an oversized shirt runs in a panic towards Ski Mask as a muscular-built bald man wearing a sheer mesh t-shirt gives chase. The muscular man's hands are balled into fists and a serious expression covers his face. The nerd quickly ducks into a room just before reaching the corridor. The mesh t-shirt man follows him in and shuts the door behind him. Ski Mask looks back at Claire and nods and then steps forward into the corridor. The only person he currently sees occupying the space is a large man in an orange shirt with black pants. He's standing at the top of the short flight of stairs. As Ski Mask and Claire move down the corridor closer to the man, they see his face is painted white and his lips black. He is stroking his cheap black Halloween fright wig that flows down to his shoulders. Ski Mask steps up to the white-faced man and looks directly at him. Where's the snake room? The white-faced man stares off in a daze. My name is Ernest. Okay, Ernest, where is the snake room? My name is Ernest. Ski Mask and Claire look at each other. She shrugs and Ski Mask tries again. Tell me where the snake room is. My name is Ernest. Ski Mask can see that Ernest's eyes are glazed over. He's obviously on some kind of drug. His gaze isn't even focused on Ski Mask, but rather in the room behind him. Ski Mask turns to see what Ernest is so fixated on. Inside the room, a group of well-dressed men and women are masturbating enthusiastically as they watch a man in a skin-tight latex outfit with a zipper mouth hood. He is accompanied by a woman with a white shirt, bow tie, fishnet stockings, and a clear plastic face mask. They are both doing some strange form of interpretive dance next to a bound woman wearing a short black skirt and a Ouija board top. When Claire peeks in, she gasps and quickly turns away. Ski Mask looks back at Ernest and realizes he's more so talking to himself as he continues to say, I am Ernest, over and over. Ski Mask and Claire both turn their heads when they hear a door open back near the corridor entrance. The mesh t-shirted man steps out of the room he had chased the nerd into. He appears to be dejected as he hangs his head and walks toward them. When he notices them watching him, he stands erect and grimaces. What the hell are you looking at? Ski Mask gives Claire a hand signal to stay where she is as he approaches the mesh shirt man. He steps in front of him and they have a short stare down before the mesh shirt man speaks. What's your problem, asshole? The mesh shirt man reaches out to shove Ski Mask, but Ski Mask intercepts this move by grabbing the mesh shirt man's hand and spinning it, forcing the mesh shirt man to roll with the turn to keep his wrist from snapping. As he twists, the mesh shirt man exposes his back to Ski Mask, allowing Ski Mask to shove him forward and press his face against the cold painted cinder block wall. Ski Mask bangs the mesh shirt man's head into the wall a couple of times while continuing to hold the wrist lock and then moves his mouth close to the mesh shirt man's ear and whispers sharply, Where's the snake room? The mesh shirt man, wincing in pain, points toward the entrance corridor with his free hand. Go around the corner. Keep following the hall. You'll, you'll know it when you see it. Ugh. Ski Mask pushes the mesh shirt man's head against the hard cinder block wall one more time before releasing him. Ski Mask takes a step back, waiting to see if Mr. Mesh Shirt wants to try anything else. Clearly, the defeated man wants no more. 
He stands looking down at the floor submissively. Ski Mask and Claire walk away in the direction of the snake room. Once Ski Mask is gone, the mesh shirt man turns around, leans back against the cold wall, and lets out a breath. Oh, that was nice. Ski Mask and Claire turn down a dark corridor. Portions of the hall have splashes of fantastic blue lighting. Other portions are completely black. Ski Mask can feel Claire latch onto the back of his shirt to ensure that he doesn't get too far ahead of her. Figures can be seen periodically in the shadows of the corridor, but Ski Mask doesn't pay them any mind. He keeps motoring along until the corridor empties into a thinner, unusual hallway. The hall they now find themselves standing in is fashioned with at least a dozen toilets. To their left is the end of the hall. In order to continue on, they are required to pass every single toilet. There is no shortcut. Two people occupy toilets immediately in front of them and Ski Mask recognizes them as the first people he encountered in Club Fun. The beehive hairdo woman and the man in the purple shirt. The beehive woman is sitting on one of the toilets with her panties around her ankles. The purple shirt man is sitting next to her. He's fully clothed and holds a bottle of water in her mouth, forcing her to drink it while encouraging her to urinate. Yeah, come on. Piss for daddy. I want to hear that hot piss pounding against that porcelain. Claire gasps. Oh my word. The beehive woman's eyes latch onto Claire as a heavy stream of urine hitting the toilet water can be heard. She continues chugging water and appears to smile, undoubtedly enjoying the audience. The only other person they encounter in the hall of toilets is a man sitting on the last toilet reading a book. As they pass him, the smell indicates that he is indeed defecating as he reads. The bandana over her face is not enough to defend her from the offensive odor, so Claire covers her nose with one hand while holding up her other hand to shield her from having to view the defecating man. As they enter the twist of a new corridor, Ski Mask picks up the pace until he finally sees several doors, but they are all identical plain gray doors. Nothing to indicate what type of rooms they are. Ski Mask stops at one of the rooms and puts his ear to the door. He can hear someone moaning within, so he opens it. The room is glowing with dim yellow lighting. In the center of the room is a man wearing a skimpy women's fall leather bikini lingerie. He is holding his arms out to the side as a completely naked man and woman pour vegetable oil on his body and then rub him down with sponges. The naked man and woman are both gingers and their lack of clothing confirm that they are in fact true redheads. The man in the leather bikini has a full head of white hair and a thick white mustache. He looks familiar to Ski Mask and then it dawns on him. It's that asshole Dr. Clark who bumped into him earlier at the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital. Dr. Clark's annoyance with the interruption is evident in his voice. Do you mind? I'm getting oiled. Ski Mask steps back out of the room and shuts the door. That fruit in the mesh shirt said we know it when we saw it, but these all look the same to me. Claire shrugs and notices a man walking toward them. He's wearing a blue shirt and sunglasses. His ball cap doesn't hide his out-of-style curly mullet. He looks kind of normal. Ask him. Ski Mask stops the man. Where's the snake room? Mullet Man stares at Ski Mask for a moment and then breaks into mime artistry. First, he acts as if he's trapped in an invisible box and then performs as though he's pulling an invisible rope. Ski Mask's patience boils over and he grabs Mullet Man by the throat. 
I hate mimes. Now where is the fu- He stops mid-word when he hears Claire clear her throat in objection. He gives Claire a sharp look and then continues with Mullet Man, absent the obscenities. Where is the snake room? Upon hearing a voice at his side, Ski Mask turns his head to see a man flanked by a woman. The couple is out of place in this environment, sporting business casual attire. The woman is wearing glasses and her hair is tied back in a ponytail. The man is wearing khakis with a short-sleeved collared shirt. His beard is neatly trimmed. He has a folded backgammon set tucked under his arm. He speaks to Ski Mask. Are you looking for the snake room? Ski Mask shoves Mullet Man to the side and nods. These two look the most normal of all, which probably means they're the weirdest of the bunch. The backgammon woman smiles and then turns to a door at their side, points, and lets out a loud hiss. Ski Mask and Claire step closer to the singled out door. At first it looks like all the other rooms in the corridor, but as they get closer, they see the difference smeared in blood across the front of the door. Ten letter S's in a row, indicating the hiss of a snake. Chapter 7 Snake Woman Ski Mask puts his ear to the door and attempts to gauge what might be behind it, but the thudding cacophony of gothic music is too dominant. Ski Mask pulls Claire close to him. I don't know what's in there. When we get inside, stick close to the wall. Try to stay hidden in the shadows until I tell you to do something. Understand? Yes. Ski Mask nods. Here we go. Ski Mask opens the door and they quickly step inside of the room. The gothic music is deafening. The thudding beat reverberates through the room and vibrates their bodies. The room is darkened with the exception of the short flight of four stairs and the large pedestal it leads to which are lit by a purple spotlight. Atop the pedestal, they see Medusa. She is naked, her skin covered in green body paint. Her dreadlock snake-like hair has been dyed bright orange. She appears to be wearing novelty contacts that have made her eyes solid red. Medusa is on her hands and knees and is being penetrated roughly from behind by a brawny man who is naked save what appears to be a cobra mask. Ski mask can make out the glistening movement of snakes slithering over Medusa's back. Medusa spots Ski Mask and hisses at him, sticking out her self-mutilated tongue, which has been split in two to resemble that of a snake. She gives Snakehead Man a quick nod and he withdraws from her, stands, and approaches Ski Mask. As Snakehead draws near, Ski Mask notices that the man is not wearing a mask at all. His face has been tattooed with dark scales, and he appears to have had a body modification where some form of subdermal implant has given him a permanent cobra-like hood around his head. The still erect man bears his modified snake fangs and lunges at Ski Mask, who easily sidesteps the assault, turns and snaps the Snakehead Man's neck. He crumples to the floor like a broken accordion. Ski Mask looks up at Medusa, who now stands, hissing at him. She is holding a long snake over her head. Ski Mask gets a better look at the snakes and lets out a groan. He speaks loudly back to Claire so he can be heard over the thudding music. 
These are black mambas, one of the most venomous snakes in the world. I know. The good news is that they typically flee rather than strike, unless they feel threatened. But if angered, they can be very aggressive. I'll try to make this quick. Ski Mask's plan is to rush Medusa and attempt to knock her out quickly. If all goes as planned, she'll collapse, drop the snake, and it will simply slink away. The main challenge will be navigating the swarm of black mambas slithering around her feet. It's imperative that he not step on any of them, thus angering them. Most are close to her, so he thinks he can avoid them by using his reach. Ski Mask moves quickly to the stairs, but slows once he realizes her plan of action. Medusa holds the 14-foot black mamba out in front of her, harshly slaps the back of the snake's head multiple times, and then hurls the creature at Ski Mask. The throw of the serpent is spot on. She's done this before. Ski Mask attempts to simply brush the snake aside, but it becomes entangled around his arms. As he tries to let the angry snake loose, it strikes. Black mambas are fast and can strike multiple times in the blink of an eye, as this one does. Successful bites on Ski Mask's neck and his lip are achieved before he can toss the creature aside. Ski Mask continues to move forward, but Medusa has paintbrushed another black mamba, infuriating the snake before hurling it at Ski Mask, and then another, and then another. Claire screams as she watches helplessly while Ski Mask attempts to toss the snakes aside before being bitten, but they're too fast and angry and she can see that he is taking a lot of damage. Ski Mask reaches the pedestal, but is significantly slowed by the Black Mamba's neurotoxins. Medusa sidesteps him effortlessly, lowers herself, slithers down the steps, and then launches herself at Claire. Claire tries to retreat, but Medusa is too fast for her. While only being of average size, Medusa still towers over the petite Claire, who is tossed toward the center of the room. Medusa crouches down and hisses at Claire. She then reaches down and picks up a nearby black mamba that is attempting to flee. Ski Mask turns. He finally has thrown aside all of the black mambas, but has taken countless bites. He looks down at his hands, which are swollen and covered in blood and venom. His entire body burns as though he is engulfed in flame. He watches on as Claire scoots back further into the room, attempting to keep her distance from Medusa, but the snake woman moves forward, picking up snakes as she goes, angering them with slaps and then tossing them toward Claire. Enough snakes have been tossed her way to where Claire is now encircled. The snakes, feeling endangered, hiss at Claire, opening their inky black mouths in an aggressive manner. Ski Mask attempts to move forward toward Claire, but his legs won't budge and he collapses. He looks up to see Medusa with angered snakes in both of her hands. She is holding them high on their necks so they can't strike her. They both hiss, ready to attack. Medusa joins them in hissing and prepares to hurl both prepped and furious snakes at Claire. Ski Mask watches on, using his arms to crawl toward Claire, but suddenly, the room begins to spin, and all goes dark. The End The Nine Lives of Ski Mask continues with Life 6, Insane Asylum. The Nine Lives of Ski Mask, Life 6, Insane Asylum, Chapter 1, 
Snake Charmer. Ski Mask opens his eyes. He expects to see the death room and the alluring white light calling to him, but he doesn't. And instead of the expected peaceful silence of the death room, all he can hear is a loud pounding noise, a bass and drums. He looks around through blurred vision at the room he is in. The snake room. He isn't dead yet. By squinting his eyes, he cuts through the blur enough to make out Claire, sitting in the middle of a circle of serpents, as Medusa pulls her arms back and flings two more black mambas at her. Ski Mask's feeling of helplessness is replaced by rage. As adrenaline pumps through his venom-filled body, he can feel a surge of life blast through his legs, and he springs forward past the ring of snakes, taking several more bites along the way as he steps in front of Claire and intercepts the two black mambas. He was lucky with the catch. Neither snake is wrapped around him, allowing him to immediately throw them back at Medusa. They both hit her in the face and become entangled in her dreadlocks. Medusa grasps at the snakes, trying to pull them from her head, but is only successful at further traumatizing the snakes, causing them both to strike at her. They bite her multiple times on both of her arms. She cries out as they strike her over and over. Finally, she is able to toss the snakes aside, but it is too late. She has taken innumerable bites, and the heavy dose of venom takes immediate effect. Medusa cries out in pain and then falls to the floor, convulsing violently for several seconds before going still. Though he can't make out the details of Claire's face, it's obvious that she is frozen in fear. Ski Mask bends down, scoops her up, and carries her out of the snake ring. Several snakes strike out at his pant legs. He's not sure if any penetrated his skin or not, but at this point, it doesn't matter. He stumbles slightly as he reaches for the door, but manages to open it and set Claire down outside. He thinks he hears Claire say wait as he goes back into the snake room, shutting the door behind him in an effort to keep Claire safe. Ski Mask eyes Medusa's green body on the floor and approaches her. The room begins to spin again, but Ski Mask concentrates as he grabs Medusa's bright orange dreadlocks and pulls her out of the room and into the hallway. As he shuts the door, he can see a spinning version of Claire. Her mouth is moving. She must be saying something to him, but he can't hear her anymore. The spinning intensifies and morphs into darkness. The death room. His home away from home. His friend. Ski Mask looks up at the black ceiling, which instantly removes the stress from his eyes. The pureness of the silence is calming. He looks to the right at the glowing white wall of light. It pulsates slightly as if calling to him, and he wonders why he doesn't go to it. Mona was correct at one time. Initially he did fear it, but not anymore. Now the light comforts him, and he knows the essence that dwells beyond will be something unfathomably perfect. He takes a step forward, wondering if he can make it to the light before he is catapulted back to where he came back to Claire. He stops. He turns away from the light and looks through the oval windows. He sees Claire. She's holding his face in her hands and is visibly mournful. Ski Mask opens his eyes. Once again they fill with life. Ski Mask, are you here? Are you back? Ski Mask lets out a groan. 
He looks at Medusa's dead body on the floor and then back at the snake room door. That was interesting. Schemask looks at Claire, who is smiling. He can't help but smile back as she helps him up to his feet, and he realizes that he is genuinely glad to be back. Let's get out of here. He looks down at the deceased snake woman, grabs her by the dreadlocks, and begins to drag her down the hall. As they reach the end of the corridor, Schemask thinks he recognizes a familiar face watching him, and then ducking back behind a corner when spotted. Is that Platinum? Is she following him again? Or perhaps he simply mistook some other whore in this place for her. Schemask's train of thought is interrupted when he sees a man wearing hospital scrubs and a horse head mask dragging a woman down the corridor past them. Schemask recognizes the Ouija board shirt on the woman being dragged and realizes she is the woman he saw earlier in the room full of masturbators. The horse head man stops momentarily when he realizes Schemask is watching him. His body language displays nervous panic as he picks up his pace and pulls the Ouija board shirt woman around a corner. Schemask continues pulling Medusa down the corridor and shakes his head at the oddity. What a bunch of freaks. Chapter 2 Copacetic Schemask pulls his truck next to a side entrance of the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital per instructions from Dr. Franklin Grimm. Franklin was absolutely giddy when he received the call and still appears to be in that state as he bolts out of the side entrance to Schemask's window. Dr. Grimm glimpses in the back and smiles when he notices Medusa's dreadlocks peeking out from behind the wool blanket she is covered with. Did you kill her? Yes, now come on, let's get moving. Dr. Grimm darts back inside the hospital and emerges pushing a gurney topped with several sheets. Oh, let's, let's get her on this. Dr. Grimm continues talking as Schemask, with some assistance from Claire, carries Medusa to the gurney. We'll cover her up and wheel her back up to her room. I gave tasks to several of the employees on the floor that we might have otherwise came in contact with, so this should be smooth sailing. Dr. Grimm is correct. It was easy to get her back to her room unnoticed. They only encountered a few hospital employees, most of whom were more interested in being noticed by Dr. Grimm than they were curious about the man in the ski mask pushing the gurney or what was hidden under the sheets. Once in the privacy of the room, they remove the sheets. Before they go further, Ski Mask makes a point to bring something up to Dr. Grimm. I thought I saw Platinum at Club Fun tonight. Is she still working for you? Dr. Grimm looks at him with a confused expression. What the hell are you talking about? Platinum, that whore that you hired to follow me back when we first met. I think I saw her tonight. Ski Mask, I, I, I never hired anyone to follow you. Now Schemask is as confused as Dr. Grimm. After I left your lab that first night, some whore in a platinum blonde wig was following me. She told me I should hear what you had to say. Dr. Grimm shrugs. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I don't know anyone named Platinum. I, I don't know any whores. I, I never hired anyone to follow you. Maybe Alfred? <laughs> no, absolutely not. We have no reason to hire such a person for anything. So you're telling me that you and Alfred never hired a whore in a platinum blonde wig? That is what I'm telling you. 
Ski Mask lets out a breath and rubs his hand over the chin area of his Ski Mask as he thinks. Ski Mask, uh, is, is this something that we should be concerned about? Ski Mask shakes his head and gets back to the task at hand. No, if it becomes an issue, I'll take care of it. The trio spends a fair amount of time cleaning the paint off of Medusa's body and hair before placing her on the bed and covering her to the neck with a blanket. Dr. Grimm removes a cellophane bag from his jacket pocket, opens it, and dumps the contents on the floor. Ski Mask and Claire move in closer to see an empty syringe. Dr. Grimm smiles and wrings his hand while he speaks mockingly. <laughs> she died of an overdose. How unfortunate. Dr. Grimm is slightly surprised when Dr. Clark enters the room, but not near as surprised as Dr. Clark is that Franklin is there. Oh, uh, Dr. Grimm, I, I didn't know you were here. Well, Dr. Clark, I am here. Schemas glares at Dr. Clark. Most would assume the glisten in Dr. Clark's hair to be from hair product, but Schemask and Claire know that if anyone got close enough to him, they may detect the distinct scent of vegetable oil. What do you want, Dr. Clark? Oh, I just arrived and was doing my rounds. Well, you're late. She's quite dead. Dead? She overdosed. Not only did that idiot of head of security, Mr. Walters, allow Jack Winters to escape, he's letting drug trafficking slip by him as well. He is terminated effective immediately, and he has already been replaced. Everything is copacetic. Dr. Clark looks confused as he notices the man in the ski mask standing next to Dr. Grimm and the petite woman behind him. Who are these people? Dr. Grimm stands erect as he proudly makes his announcement. Meet the new head of security. Ski Mask steps forward and stands menacingly in front of Dr. Clark, who shudders as Ski Mask speaks. Call me Ski Mask. Chapter 3 Head of Security As Schemas strolls down the corridors of the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital, he revels in the obvious fright that patients, doctors, and all hospital employees display when they see him coming. Some go to great lengths to avoid eye contact with him as he passes. Some actually turn back and go the opposite direction, while others dash into nearby rooms until he is out of sight. They all fear Ski Mask, and that's exactly what he wants. Since he took over as head of security eight months ago, the changes he implemented have gone smoothly. He kept the majority of the previous security force on staff. He mainly needed bodies. Drones that will do what they are told when they are told. It didn't take Ski Mask long to whip them all into shape. The only significant hire he made was that of a dependable second-in-command. All of the guards wear standard security guard uniforms. The uniforms are decorated with a unique number on the front and back. Ski Mask addresses them by their individual number. Numbers are all they are to him anyhow. The only guard that doesn't wear a uniform is Ski Mask himself. He normally wears dark pants and boots, and a dark solid-colored t-shirt covered by a button-up work shirt, usually gray or tan. And of course, he always wears his ski mask. With the exception of Dr. Grimm, no one knows what he looks like. 
Another twist to Ski Mask's hospital attire is a small headset he wears under the Ski Mask that runs a voice-disguising amplifier to the front of his mouth, which distorts his voice when speaking. The amplification of his breathing and the raspiness of the mechanical voice make him sound like a combination of Darth Vader and Nick Nolte. The purpose of the appearance and the distorted voice is for added intimidation. His goal is for all who see him to be scared as hell without him having to even give them another reason to be. And it works. The Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital is an old building and was built as a medical hospital, not a secure psychiatric institute, so there are weak points for any patient who may want to escape. But Ski Mask simply plugs those weak areas with live bodies his troop of security guards, his drones. The hospital is mainly a medium security facility. The majority of the patients have no desire to leave and wouldn't be a danger to anyone even if they did. Ski Mask transitioned an entire floor of the hospital to be used for the patients who pose more of a threat. He simply refers to it as the secured floor. Security guards are stationed outside the stairwells and the elevator. Rooms line both sides of the corridor of the secured floor. The doors to all the rooms can be shut and locked. Some patients are allowed to come out of their rooms and roam the hallways if they behave, while others spend most of their time confined. While not exactly Alcatraz, locked doors and ample security guards are enough to keep everyone in line, and at this point, Ski Mask has most of the patients on this floor well-trained. Ski Mask occasionally unlocks and opens one of the patient's doors. If they exit the room without permission, they receive a beating. Most caught on after the first beating. Some took two beatings. Not many took three. There is one section of the floor that is reserved for the most dangerous patient. This section is called the deadbolt. It has a secure double cell door that leads to a thick glass encased room where the subject can be easily viewed at all times. At least four guards man this section. Ski Mask has been in talks with Dr. Grimm to expand the section into an entire maximum security wing. Construction on the expansion is scheduled to start within a few months. The deadbolt is currently being occupied by a drooling psycho named Chet Cornwell, better known as Scissors, due to his tendency to attack people with the household item. He's an unpredictable man in his 60s who wouldn't hesitate to flee or attack given a chance. He is definitely the correct choice, but there is one other patient on the floor whose ski mask would consider a great candidate for the deadbolt. John Bromley. Ski mask walks down the secured floor corridor to John Bromley's room. The door is locked, of course, and he always has at least one security guard posted outside. Today, there are two. One of the guards outside Bromley's door is ski mask's second-in-command, Marciano. How is he today? Nice and quiet. Marciano is a fireplug who resembles the pugilistic legend he was named after. His nose is crooked from several scuffles he has obviously encountered in his lifetime, and his smile reveals a missing front tooth. He's a solid, dependable second-in-command that Ski Mask can count on when he's away. Let's give him a little test, shall we? Ski Mask motions to the guards and they both plaster themselves against the wall next to John Bromley's door. Ski Mask unlocks it and pushes the door open as he sneaks out of view on the other side of the doorway. Ski Mask listens. 
He can hear the shuffle of Bromley's hospital slippers as he slowly moves closer. When Bromley gets so close that Ski Mask can hear him breathing, Ski Mask steps out in front of the doorway. John Bromley is a large bull of a man with white hair. His expression shifts to surprise when he sees Ski Mask, who kicks the behemoth in the chest, rocking him backwards across the room onto his bed. Ski Mask removes a billy club from his belt and advances toward Bromley, who holds his hands up in defeat. I didn't mean to leave the room. I just stepped close to the doorway. Correction. You stepped too close to the doorway. Ski Mask twirls his baton as he moves closer to Bromley. Okay, okay, I, I, I won't get that close to the doorway again. Ski Mask stops and stares at Bromley for a moment before he feints striking him. Bromley flinches, making Ski Mask grin. You're damn right you won't. Ski Mask exits the room, locks the door, and turns to Marciano. Be aware that this psycho will try to escape if ever given the chance. Yes, sir. Never give him that chance. I won't. You can count on it. Marciano notices that Ski Mask's eyes have shifted to something behind him, and he turns to see Dr. Clark listening to them, and then quickly walking into a nearby room upon being discovered. I can't stand that Dr. Clark. He's always sniffing around like a dog. Don't insult dogs. Call him what he is, a devious asshole. Don't ever trust that guy. Chapter 4 The Light The dead man's head droops forward. The wall restraints chained to his wrists keep him from plummeting to the ground. Alfred presses the lifeline device to the base of the man's skull and waits. One minute. No change. Two minutes. Nothing. Ten minutes. Not a goddamn thing. He turns to Claire, who is behind him in a lab coat, holding a clipboard. She is jotting down notes, but is now looking up crossly at Alfred for cussing. He holds up his hand before she can scold him. I apologize for the profanity. This is the sixth manual subject in a row who hasn't lasted beyond life three. He turns and looks off as his mind works. The auto-renewals aren't faring much better. We haven't had one of them reach their ninth life in over a month. Most are malfunctioning by life five. In the past eight months of working with Alfred, Claire has learned that the project is everything to him. It's his life. He has taken up full-time residence in the apartment adjoining the lab. He works from the moment he wakes up until his head hits the pillow at night. He has a growing case of tunnel vision, and one of Claire's greatest attributes has been making Alfred pull his focus back and see things from different viewpoints. I don't think it's a malfunction at all. How do you mean? To you, these experiments are like parts on a car. They function or they don't, and if they don't work properly, you feel like they need to be repaired. But these aren't components. These are living human subjects. They have choices, and I believe they are exercising them. Don't you think I've reflected upon this prospect? But how can one not choose life? It goes against all animal instincts to survive. These people are being kidnapped, held against their will, tortured. I'm not torturing these people. I am merely experimenting on them for the greater good. To them, it's torture. 
They didn't sign up for this. Think of everything we know about the light from Ski Mask, and from that Australian man, and that woman Mona. Think of the reactions of so many of our subjects when they return from having just seen the light. Everything about it is positive. It's soothing, it's beautiful, it calls to them. What lies beyond is supposed to be so incredible that we as humans can't begin to comprehend it. So you tell me, if you were poised with choosing before surviving, only to be tortured and killed again, or walk into that fantastic light that makes you feel like everything will be delightful, which would you choose? Alfred is clearly in deep thought and sits down. And the only reason the auto-renewals are lasting a little longer is because those people don't have as long to make a choice before they're brought back here. But eventually they figure it out and are probably running for that light. These are unwilling subjects. That's what the problem is. You need subjects who are willing to take part in this. And where am I supposed to find such people? Offering financial rewards would likely be a good starting point. Alfred nods and sits again. He ponders Claire's suggestion, looks at her, and smiles. You're good at this. I'm confident that you could oversee this entire project on your own. I'm not so sure about that. I am. For the first time since I began this project, I feel like I could take a vacation day if I felt so inclined, and nothing would skip a beat in my absence. He leans back in his chair, and his expression contorts into serious thought. I felt so overwhelmed knowing that I was the only one that was truly committed to this. I don't think I can convey to you how comforting that is to me. I never felt that way with Franklin. He's intelligent. His understanding of the project is impressive enough, but ultimately, he lacks passion. Perhaps if his mind weren't so focused elsewhere... An alarm sounds and they both look up at the monitors to see Ski Mask has arrived home. All of the dogs except Madeline and Max have been lying around in the lab in various places. Their ears perk up when they hear the alarm and they simultaneously race out of the room to meet their master. The deep bark of Madeline and chirping bark of Max are heard from Alfred's apartment. They have taken to lying on his bed while Claire is helping in the lab. They do their best to catch up with the rest of the pack as they canter through the lab, out the door, and down the corridor. Claire begins to follow them, but stops when Alfred calls out to her. Claire, which would you choose? She doesn't seem to fully understand his question, so he elaborates. Returning or entering the light? Oh, she thinks for a moment. I honestly don't know. She turns and exits the lab and Alfred leans back in his chair. Ski Mask enters the main room and is greeted by his furry family. As he usually does, he bends down and lets them jump all over him to the point of knocking him over. This is the only time anyone would ever see Ski Mask laughing. He gets to his feet once he sees Claire exit the East Wing corridor into the main room. She's still wearing her lab coat, thus is obviously coming up from working with Alfred. You have your hands full with the animals all day. Don't feel obligated to help Alfred and his project. He can manage. I find it fascinating. This will change the world once it's perfected. For better or worse? That's a good question, and one that should be asked. Inevitably, there will be consequences to trying to play God. But with an open mind, one can envision beneficial paths stemming from this that Alfred has never even fathomed. 
But back to your point, I don't mind doing it. Not at all. I love everything I do here. The animals, the lifeline project, you... She starts to stammer, realizing how that sounded. I, I, I didn't mean it like that. I, I mean, I love helping you. I know what you meant. His eyes lock onto hers, and he realizes he's staring at her longer than he should be. Claire seems to have noticed, but doesn't seem to mind as she is smiling and blushing slightly. Ah, ski mask. There you are. Alfred's interruption causes the duo to break their stare, collect themselves, and turn toward Alfred. Did Claire mention the need for more subjects? Already? Shit, Alfred. There's no shortage of people who piss me off enough to gather for your experiments, but you're using them up faster than I can get them. Language. Ski Mask rolls his eyes and gives her a quick look. Sorry. Alfred steps forward and almost trips over Scarface and Darkness, who have started nuzzling his ankles. Oh, pardon me, cats? He looks up at Ski Mask. Yes, well, Claire and I have discussed a new strategy. Rather than going the current route with non-willing participants, we've concluded that new, eager participants would be more to our benefit at this time. Perhaps subjects who are monetarily compensated? Ski Mask thinks for a moment. Hmm. I'll check with Tamale. Splendid. Ski Mask starts toward the West Wing, which leads to the Parrot Room, and Alfred holds up a finger. Might I ask if you saw Franklin at the hospital today? Of course. The guy's there before I show up and still there after I leave. Would you mind telling him to call me next time he's in your presence? Ski Mask scoffs at Alfred's request. I'm not your message boy. If you want to talk to him, go there and talk to him. Uh, yes, yes, that, that would be most effective. Ski Mask turns and disappears into the West Wing corridor, followed by Madeline and Max. Alfred walks to the main entrance. Ski Mask is right. I haven't been to the hospital to see Franklin in ages. I'm just as much to blame for our lack of communication as he is. Claire gives him a nod and smiles as he exits. She smiles at Slick, who has taken a seat by the door, keeping an eye on everything. She looks down at Dempsey and Floppy, who shadow her every move. They look up at her with a happiness in their eyes, urging her to pet them, and she happily obliges. The moment she bends down, Trip and Snowman rush over and get in on the action. Oh goodness, yes, that's my babies. Instinctively, Claire reaches around, trying to find Madeline and Max, who normally join in on this type of affection, but realizes that Ski Mask is in the West Wing, so they'll be down there waiting for him. Claire rises and walks to the start of the West Wing corridor. She grins when she hears Ski Mask baby-talking the two dogs. The parrots are spooked by the dog, so Ski Mask never allows them into the room with him. She can hear him explaining to Madeline and Max that they can wait there for him. Claire walks down the West Wing corridor and gives both dogs a pat before entering. Ski Mask is sitting in his lounge chair with Lovebug the cockatoo nibbling at his hair. Sisko and Pancho greet her with a series of Hello and Hi there. It's a pleasant day and the exterior option is open. Normally, most of the birds would be outside, but obviously they all came in to greet Ski Mask. Scarlet, the Scarlet Macaw, and Steel, the Indigo Macaw, both fly to Claire and perch on her shoulders. Claire makes chirpy sounds to them as she approaches Ski Mask. Got room for one more? Well, three more? 
Ski Mask nods and scoots over as much as he can. It's a wide chair, but just meant for one. However, Claire is petite enough for this to work. Even leaning back, Ski Mask's feet easily reach the floor, whereas Claire is so small, the bend of her knees don't reach the cushion, keeping her legs straight. She smiles as she shakes her feet around a bit to exemplify the situation. Greystoke perches on a limb close to them. He lets out a series of pretty boy and pretty girl. Ski Mask and Claire simultaneously say pretty bird. Claire lets out a laugh and Sisko and Pancho fly back outside. Well, I guess they've had it with us. Ski Mask smiles and leans back further. They both enjoy the sounds of the birds and nature for a few moments until Claire speaks. Tell me about the light. Ski Mask takes in a deep breath and lets it out. I was afraid at first. It was pulling me in. It had power over me and I didn't know what it was. I was too dead set on staying away from it to feel the energy. How does the energy feel? It's hard to explain. The second time I died I still fought against it, but I could feel something coming from it. An atmosphere surrounding me. I felt like, I don't know, I, I could say comforted, but that wouldn't be doing it justice. It was like all of my concerns were gone. I felt whole. I felt right. Since he put in the autoresponder, I'm not there as long, but the energy grows stronger each time. Do you still fear it? No, not at all. I welcome it. They both stare forward and relax together and enjoy the sights and sounds of the birds. After a long period, Ski Mask turns to Claire. Want to help me make some dog food? Claire smiles cheerfully. Chapter 5 Grim vs. Grim Marciano stirs a half teaspoon of sugar into his mother's ginger tea. When he turns and steps toward the kitchen table, he's surprised to see that his mother is no longer sitting there. He rushes to the living room to see his mother slowly limping her way toward a recliner. She's a frail, skinny woman in her upper 80s with bluish-gray hair. She is wearing a purple-flowered nightgown. Ma! He rushes to her side and assists her to the recliner. Ma, what are you doing? You gotta use your walker! I don't need a walker. You're gonna fool around and break your hip. Use your walker, you hear? Fine. Marciano leans in and gives his mother a kiss on the temple. She pats his arm as he does. Is your sister here yet? No, Ma. Tina isn't coming today. It's the nurse's day today. Why do you always call her the nurse? Her name is Becky. Marciano shrugs. I don't know. Because she's a nurse? Marciano looks at his watch and begins looking around anxiously. What are you so fidgety about? I, I gotta get back to work. My break is almost over. I'm gonna be late. So go. Go and do a good job. It's just that the nurse won't be here for another hour. I hate leaving you alone. She waves him off. Go on. I'll be fine. I'll watch an episode of Murder, She Wrote. By the time it's over, Becky will be here. Promise me you won't get up and walk around while you're alone, okay? Okay. Okay, Ma. I love you. I love you too. 
Marciano rushes down the apartment complex stairs to his car, checking his watch the entire time. If he steps on it and rushes once he gets to the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital, he should be able to make it to his post on time, but it's going to be close. Ski Mask is a stickler for the guards being on time, and as his second-in-command, Marciano feels it's important to set a good example for the other guards. After exceeding the speed limit the entire time and recklessly passing a few other vehicles, he reaches the hospital ahead of schedule. He quickly trots across the parking lot to the main entrance and sees one of the entrance guards laughing heartily with an old bald man. He briskly approaches the guard and the man. What's going on here? You need to be surveying the lobby. You can't be yucking it up when you're on duty. The guard is apologetic. I'm sorry, this is Dr. Grimm. Uh, the other Dr. Grimm. He was the head of the hospital until he retired and our current boss took over. Oh, Dr. Grimm's father. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Likewise. I'm just here to see my son. Sure thing. He points to the guard. Let him up, I gotta get to my post. As Marciano hurries past, the guard gives a few pleasant parting words to Alfred and lets him through. Alfred strolls confidently through his old stomping grounds, being greeted by familiar faces. Several doctors and nurses stop what they're doing to catch up with him. Many of the holdover guards leave their post to shake his hand and chat. He is obviously very well liked by his former employees. As he nears his son's office, he rounds a corner and is pleased to see Dr. Lewis. She is one of Franklin's better doctors and runs the hospital when Franklin and Dr. Clark are both away. Alfred, it's been too long. Ah, Dr. Lewis, you are looking as lovely as ever. Oh, stop. Uh, not really. Go on, please. They laugh. How are things with you nowadays? Rough. I quit smoking and I'm not handling it well. I'm one annoyance away from lighting up again. Well, I have faith in you. Dr. Lewis discreetly looks around, moves in closer to Alfred, and speaks in a softened tone. So, do you know if Franklin is seeing anyone? I really don't think so. But you're married. Not happily. Oh, Dr. Lewis, you are incorrigible. He laughs and gives her a playful pat on the shoulder. It was good to see you again. Alfred walks down the hall to his son's office and enters. His secretary, Gloria, finishes up a phone call and beams when she sees Alfred. Dr. Grimm! She gets up, hurries to the front of her desk, and gives him a hug. You look great! You always knew how to brighten my day. Did I mention that you were my favorite secretary of all time? Too many times to count. How is Franklin treating you? Fine. He's not as much fun as you were. He's all business all the time, but I can't complain. Is he in? Yes, go right on in. Alfred gives Gloria one last smile and then enters Franklin's office. Franklin looks up from some papers on his desk. What the hell are you doing here? Alfred walks deeper into the large office and sits in one of the two chairs in front of Franklin's desk. I haven't seen you in quite some time. I've been busy. What can I do for you? You're my son. I haven't seen you in months. Can't I visit you? Franklin lets out a breath. Fine, yes. Alfred notices a picture of Dr. Grimm's ex-wife and daughter on his desk. He picks it up and looks at it. Have you talked to either of them lately? Uh, no, we don't get along. I find it better not to bother them. You're aware of this. 
Alfred sets the picture down and then picks up the picture of Franklin's mother from his desk. He stares at it longingly. I miss her. Franklin snatches the picture from Alfred's hands, puts it in a drawer, and shuts it. What do you want? We've hit a snag in the experiments. We have determined that unwilling subjects are choosing on their own to- Franklin interrupts him. I don't care. Alfred appears disappointed. I thought you might be interested. Oh, not really. I've got my hands full here. Listen, I need your help, Franklin. I need you back on the Lifeline Project. I'm sure you've been doing just fine on your own. Actually, Claire has been assisting me. She's been doing quite well. Great, great. You have one assistant. You don't need another. You're not an assistant. Bullshit. That's all I ever was. This has been your project from the beginning. You did the research. You did the experiments. You made the prototypes. You didn't even ask me to be part of it until you had the damn thing up and running. I've never been anything but your assistant. This is your passion, not mine. My passion is here, this hospital. It may not be as sexy as the Lifeline Project, but it's mine. Alfred looks around the large but aging office. He notices the watermarks on the ceiling and the cracks in the paint. He shakes his head. This place? This is what you're proud of? This is why you're turning back on something that will change the world as we know it? So you can be the head of a second-rate shabby mental institution? I wouldn't expect you to understand. You're a brilliant man, father, but you lack empathy. It took me years to be judged on my own merits and respected for who I am and not just thought of as the boss's son. But I did it. And when you retired and recommended somebody else for the job, I only recommended somebody else because I assumed you would be joining me full-time on the project. Franklin raises his voice so he can be heard over his father. I crawled out from under your shadow, and I earned my position here because everyone else knew I was the best person for this job, even if you didn't. I earned this position, not because I was Alfred Grimm's son, but because I was the best. I'm here now. I am not about to go back. You're going to have to accept that. This is preposterous. The Lifeline Project will go down as one of the most important discoveries in human history. I don't have long left, Franklin. When I'm gone, it will be yours. Why? Why are you so hell-bent on having me as part of this when you know I don't want to be? Because you are my son. When I'm gone, the entire project will be passed on to you. This is my life's work. The grim name must always be associated with it. Franklin thinks for a moment. What about what I want? Franklin leans back in his chair as he speaks. When I was ten years old and you and mother divorced, you knew how desperately she wanted me to live with her. You knew how badly I wanted that, too. But you wouldn't stand for that. You had to have things your way. So you fought her in court and convinced everyone that she was unstable, even though you and I both knew that was not the case. You tarnished her reputation to the point where I couldn't even visit her unsupervised. Three years later, when she drowned in that pool, in the back of my mind, I've always felt like had I lived with her, I would have been there. I would have done something and she would have lived, and I, and I would have a mother. You took my mother away from me just to get what you wanted. 
After a moment, Franklin grins, leans forward, and speaks with smug confidence. You are not getting what you want this time. Chapter 6 Food It was several months ago when Claire and Ski Mask broached the topic of dog food. Ski Mask went on a rant about his distrust of most store-bought dog and cat foods, complaining that many contain unhealthy byproducts and cheap oils known to cause inflammation such as vegetable, canola, soy, and corn. He also criticized their unnecessary use of food dyes, cellulose, and the long list of ingredients that most people can't pronounce. He explained to her how his father was a butcher. Ski Mask assisted him to the point where he became well-skilled at the trade himself. One of the things that his father always lectured was never to let meat go to waste. In the spirit of that, and with as much meat as they had access to, Ski Mask's father always made their dogs and cats food himself. After learning that history, it wasn't a surprise to Claire when she discovered that Ski Mask used many of his victims as food for his animals. It also explained the necessity of the industrial-sized freezer with the handy body chute that was convenient so long as the bodies didn't take odd bounces and rolls that hit the fail-safe lever. Of course, Ski Mask had long since corrected that unforeseen, unlikely issue. Ski Mask explained the process to her in detail the first few times, and then a little less each subsequent lesson, as it began to sink in and explanation no longer became necessary. This was likely similar to the way his father taught him, albeit with beef, not humans. The procedure is always the same. Ski Mask hangs the carcass for a short time, quarters them, and then slices those sections into one-inch chunks. As far as butchering goes, the process is simple. Unlike a butcher shop, which would be dealing with an array of cuts, and would also need to be aware of the appearance of the cuts since they will be displayed for the public, Ski Mask doesn't have to be pretty. Most of his cuts will be stew meat. Some cuts will be strips that will be dried into jerky treats. The rest will be ground and mixed with coconut flour, eggs, and spices, and will be baked and cut in squares to make a universal dry treat for dogs and cats. Claire was disgusted during the first course of food making to the point where she had to leave the room and fight against vomiting. Ski Mask assured her that she would grow used to it in time. He was correct, but he is still the one who does all of the butchering. In time, she feels like she'll be able to assist him with that aspect as well, but not yet. For now, she is more helpful as a cooking assistant. The recipe for the main dog food is simple. The ingredients consist of stew meat, water, olive oil, coconut oil, eggs, and vegetables including pumpkin, summer squash, broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, peas, beets, yams, green beans, and sweet potato. He also adds a variety of herbs and spices to round out the recipe with all of the necessary vitamins and minerals his dogs and cats will need. The meat is brown first, and the rest of the ingredients are then introduced and slow cooked. Once cooked, the stew is portioned out, refrigerated, and ready for consumption. As they reach the end of this batch of food, Ski Mask looks at Claire with a sense of pride. You're getting the hang of this. Claire nods. Yeah, not too bad at all, if I do say so myself. Ski Mask looks at a clock on the wall. 
Do you mind finishing up? I have something at the hospital I've been working on. Sure, you can count on me. I know I can. Ski Mask heads toward the door but stops, turns to Claire, and says something that leaves her with a joyful smile and a twinkle in her eye. We're good together. Chapter 7 John Bromley Ski Mask approaches John Bromley's room. Marciano is on duty. He stands at attention when he sees Ski Mask and nods. Ski Mask puts his finger over his mouth and motions for Marciano to move away from the door. Marciano presses up against the wall to the side of the room as Ski Mask positions himself on the other. Ski Mask reaches over, unlocks the door, pushes it open, and then pulls his arm back in out of sight. Ski Mask waits for several seconds, expecting Bromley to pop his head out of the door, but he doesn't, and all is quiet. Ski Mask slowly leans in and peers inside the room. John Bromley is standing at the far side of the room with his back to the door as he looks out the window. Ski Mask looks at Marciano and gives him a nod. Marciano relaxes and steps in front of the door and watches as Ski Mask enters the room. Ski Mask stands inside the room entrance and focuses on Bromley as Bromley speaks to him. Hello, Ski Mask. It's a lovely day. Reminds me of family. You killed your family. Bromley looks over his shoulder and sneers at Ski Mask and then looks back out the window. Not them. My perfect family. They're out there somewhere. I must find them. The door's right there. Ski Mask steps to the side and points to the open door. He gives Marciano a quick nod and Marciano steps to the side out of sight, making the notion of walking out even more appealing to Bromley. John Bromley stares at the open door, and then at Ski Mask, and then back at the open door. The wheels in his mind are churning. His eyes start to dark back and forth rapidly from Ski Mask to the open doorway. His breathing begins to accelerate, and suddenly he bursts forward toward the door. Ski Mask grips his billy club and smacks Bromley across the shin as he reaches the doorway. Bromley collapses to the floor and grasps his lower leg. Ski Mask immediately strikes Bromley several more times in the upper arms and thighs. The goal is to inflict pain, not damage. Marciano positions himself to assist if need be, but Ski Mask is in full control. As Bromley rolls around the floor in pain, he continues to cry out, My family! I must find my perfect family! Ski Mask looks up at Marciano. This psycho is never gonna learn. I'll tell Dr. Grimm that we need to make the expansion of the deadbolt section a priority. Chapter 8 Hellhole As Ski Mask enters Tamale Jones' office, he is overwhelmed by the exotic aroma of spiced pork, steaming corn mesa, and robust peppery spices. Ski Mask shuts the door behind him and watches as Tamale takes a shark-sized bite out of one of the five heaping tamales on his desk. I had these babies shipped in from Tijuana. How are they? Tamale shrugs. 
Ah, they're okay. He wipes off his mouth with a napkin. And what can I do for you today, my friend? I need to find some people who would be willing subjects for some medical experiments. They would be paid. Any idea where I can find anyone like that? Tamale Jones doesn't hesitate. There's a little-known red light district down by the river. They call it the Hell Hole. Lots of bug-eyed Bettys and dewdroppers out there getting bent on dope. Most of them will do anything for enough cabbage to get their next fix. Perfect. How do I get there? Ski Mask pulls into the area known as the Hell Hole. What Tamale referred to as the Red Light District is merely an old abandoned port warehouse crawling with undesirables. There are a half dozen people milling about outside the entrance as Ski Mask approaches. One of them, a grimy husky man in his 40s, brandishes a knife and makes the mistake of attempting to rob Ski Mask. Give me your cash, asshole. In a blur of movement, Ski Mask kicks the man in the balls, extracts the knife from his hand, and sticks it deep into the grimy man's eye. Ski Mask twirls the knife around until the grimy man goes limp and drops to the ground. Ski Mask glares around at the others. Two of them run away, fearing for their lives. The other three are so loaded they can barely stand and didn't even notice the altercation. Ski Mask enters the hellhole and is met with a thick wave of odor that smells like a combination of musty sweat, urine, excrement, dead fish, and smoke. The entire dwelling is lit with candles. Hard puddles of cooled wax top most of the industrial-sized wooden spools that are scattered amongst the interior being used as tables. Several of the occupants inside the hellhole are passed out. Others are openly shooting up or snorting powder. Most of the corners are inhabited by people dealing drugs. Hellhole is a fitting name for this scum-encrusted structure. A filthy blonde throws herself in front of Ski Mask. You got any money, man? I need some money. Come on, I'll suck your dick. Ski Mask shoves her out of the way and continues deeper into the dimly lit hellhole. He wasn't expecting this many dwellers within. This is good. It allows him his pick of the dregs. He scans around, eyeing the dealer areas first, trying to pinpoint some users who are less likely to have soiled themselves. He notices a few of the less grubby types heading out a rear door. He decides these will be the types he targets first. He follows them out. As he steps outside, he is met with a blast of refreshing air and the calming sight of the rippling river. Ski Mask notices a wooded area where most of the scum seem to have gathered. As Ski Mask makes his way toward the wooded area, a flash of lightning fills the sky, followed by a whiplash crack of thunder. He feels someone bump against him from behind and a swift scratch across his throat. When he instinctively covers his throat with his hand, he can feel a hard pulsation of blood slapping against his palm. When he lowers his hand, he can see a jettison of crimson spurting out in front of him from his throat. The rapid loss of blood weakens him immediately and he drops to his knees. The world around him is beginning to fade, but he is intent on discovering the cause of this before he expires. Ski Mask manages to turn around and view his assailant. For some reason, he isn't entirely surprised to see Platinum standing in front of him with a grin on her face and bloody scalpel in her hand. 
What shocks him is the petite figure standing next to Platinum, looking down at him. As the figure comes into focus, Ski Mask's heart drops to the ground. Claire. For his final few seconds before falling dead, Ski Mask stares into Claire's eyes. Those beautiful, liquid blue eyes. The end. The Nine Lives of Ski Mask continues with Life 7, Whore. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Be sure to visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for the free newsletter and receive a free book and movie. We'll see you soon. Very soon. Soon.